I think the founder status is maybe gained when you kind of say, okay, I'm going to start this. I'm going to take responsibility for this idea, for the funding, for the team, and be the face and voice and body of this thing that I'm now going to lead. That's Sarah Spanglow, co-founder and CEO of Swarm Technologies. Swarm makes low-cost satellites with only 10% of the Earth having access to cell and Wi-Fi service. They're dedicated to reducing barriers for connectivity in remote areas across the entire planet. On this episode of Think Like a Founder, we talk about training to be an astronaut, keeping calm when things get tough, and making satellites the size of a grilled cheese sandwich. I'm Maureen Taylor. This is Think Like a Founder. There isn't anyone else doing what your company does. The space industry is traditionally expensive and inaccessible. To go after something that hasn't been done before, you have to be future-oriented. How did you pursue the vision that you have for Swarm? I'd love to say that it was like some grand vision that we came up with. But to be perfectly honest, it was more a series of small ideas building off one another. So in late 2016, my founder and I saw that there was quite a bit of interest in connectivity. So we saw Project Loon, Starlink, OneWeb at the time, Facebook had a solar-powered UAV project. A lot of funding was being invested in aerospace projects to solve for connectivity. And we recognized that no one was really focusing on the lower end of things. So connecting small devices and widgets, think agriculture, logistics, energy, maritime, defense, things like that. And also connecting people, but with small amounts of data. So we decided to try to come up with the smallest satellite that we could in order to connect devices and people around the globe. And first of all, our satellite was literally the size of a credit card. And if you think about it, your cell phone is actually smarter than most satellites on orbit right now because of the miniaturization of electronics and all of the advancements we've seen with the cell phone and and laptop and other electronics over the past 10 or 20 years. So eventually our satellites grew a bit. They became the quarter U size. It's about the size of a grilled cheese sandwich. You can fit it in your hand. And then we kind of went from there and it was very organic figuring out that there was a big market to connect these small devices. And if we could lower the price point, we could even make the market larger and then talking to VCs and getting funding. So it was a bunch of really, really small organic steps that kind of led us to where we are today. The advantage of being a startup is that you do have the ability to have a bias to action. And if you make a mistake, you get to try something else. You feel the same way? Absolutely. And you know what? We've made a ton of mistakes along the way, as I think all founders and all startups do. Something that we really valued is testing in the real world as soon as possible, testing with customers as soon as possible. So before we had satellites, we tested on balloons. Before we had those, we hung things in trees at far distances so we could test things. We love to iterate really, really quickly. And I think that's what really differentiates a startup relative to a big organization. We have the agility to change course day to day and optimize as we go. And you were motivated to make satellite technology more accessible because you believe the connectivity is what is the best thing for the world. I think it was a realization that a large portion of the people on the planet, you know, at least 50%, if not more, and 90% of the surface area doesn't have connectivity solutions. And I think we live in this bubble of Silicon Valley with cell phones and Wi-Fi and cell everywhere that we're totally oblivious. But the fact that we have access to all this information, even just 
weather and banking information and health information is just so valuable so that we can run effective lives and businesses and a huge portion of the world and assets in the world just don't have that. It's just a huge discrepancy. And I, I feel that connectivity is a basic human right that everyone should have access to. And that's one of the things that has motivated us along our path. It reminds me of uh, 20 years ago when a little group of people talked about democratizing information and people didn't know what they were talking about. You're talking about a similar thing with access to all the things that make the globe work to people, like having it available no matter who you are, where you are, or whether or not you have a device or some sort of connection. Is that right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, price point is a huge part of that. People can't access connectivity because it's way too expensive. So that's one thing that we're bringing the price down four to 20x. And that means that it's accessible to a lot of people that could never afford it before, enabling them to have better education, access to finance, to do their own entrepreneurial endeavors, and also just to connect devices. We don't really know how most of our world runs, our logistics, our supply chains, our ag tech our maritime systems. So if we can know and track and have status updates, we can optimize the whole system, reducing CO2 emissions, better use of water, less food spoilage and waste. There's just so many additional benefits to connectivity. Is this what you wanted to be when you grew up? When I was really little, I was a ballet dancer and I wanted to be a ballerina. And so I actually did that until I was in my 20s. But When I was in grade eight, um, I grew up in Canada, I went to space camp in Montreal and that like changed my worldview. I came back and we got to do like the moon wall and mock missions and learn about everything. And I was just enthralled and I was telling my parents I was going to be an astronaut and they didn't laugh at me. They were pretty encouraging. And so were my classmates and teachers. So that was kind of the vision since I guess grade eight on. Would you go to Mars right now? If someone said you can go to Mars right now. I don't think so. So um, I told you that I, you know, had this passion of being an astronaut growing up and I had an opportunity to apply for the Canadian astronaut program and got to go through some of that training and testing a few years ago. And I got cut when I was at the top 32. So I, I made it pretty far and I got to see what that life would be like. And I got cut and it was bittersweet because we were just starting swarm. So it allowed me to refocus my efforts. Mars, I mean, of course, we should go there and we should set up a colony and we should figure out ways to make that sustainable in case stuff happens here on Earth. I think being the first person is pretty scary, um, so I probably wouldn't do that. Maybe if I knew I was going to die in six months, four years-ish time frame, I would go. I think I have a lot to accomplish still on Earth, though, so I'm, I'm going to focus on that for now. So, and also before starting Swarm, you worked on some very cool projects as well. Things you described as, quote, being on the edge of human understanding, which is such a great quote. What are some of the projects that inspired you? Yeah, I think, you know, in grad school, I actually had the opportunity to work on CubeSat missions. So that was flying really tiny satellites to do science. And we were proving that small systems could do useful science and take measurements. So that felt a little bit on the edge of exploration. I think pushed it to another level when I was at JPL, which is the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is a NASA center in Southern California. And JPL and stuff on Mars and does all of these crazy solar system exploration. People have definitely heard about their missions. And I got to work on missions to fly through the plumes of Europa and try to collect water and bring that back 
to Earth and just study our solar system and go beyond our solar system and look for asteroids to try to prevent an Armageddon and lots of just very, very cool projects. And then at Google X, I worked on drones, which is kind of pushing forward the ability to do delivery in a different mechanism. And that was cool because we got to touch the real world, real products, real people. And then a secretive satellite project that I'm not allowed to talk about, which was also very cool. <laughs> and then smart. <laughs> of course, we all want to know more about that. I love secrets. So that's very exciting. Do you think founders or people that are mission driven or have this idea of something that they want to do are kind of like artists that there's this compulsion. It's not that it's irrational, but a little bit because it's just so focused. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I've never really thought of it as an art. I think I think of it more as a science and that's probably because I'm an engineer, but I think there is that passion that is usually irrational. Like, why do you care so much about work? Why do you wake up at 5am and go through your emails and frantically think of new ideas and push your team and motivate everyone around you and pitch for money and do these crazy things that you're totally exhausted. You should probably just stop, (laughs) but something pushes you. So I think it's probably more that. I think there is this beauty of figuring out how all of the pieces fit together. You know, I used to be a systems engineer where I would take inputs from all the subsystems, make trades and present a cohesive solution. And it was just kind of a simple job in a way. It was complicated, but it was simple. And now you have to worry about what's going on with this person's emotions and when are we going to be able to expand our lab space and what are the regulators saying and what is the international expansion strategy. So maybe there's an art in kind of balancing all of those things and also trying to figure out what the most important thing is every day and focusing on that. I do not code. I am not an engineer, but growing up with engineers, I do think you're artists. But the passion and the questions and the pushing the reality, it's extremely inspiring. But you're the driving force and the passion. And then to collect the people that are the missing puzzle pieces and it supports the mission of what you're trying to do so much better than just by yourself. Absolutely. And I think that Swarm has been really lucky to have some pretty phenomenal advisors, investors, mentors. And I think it's really important that entrepreneurs build that around themselves, that support system. And people love to help. They're an expert. You know, they can provide their input, but they don't really know your situation 100%. So it's ultimately up to you to decide. So it's not like you're losing control. You're just gathering more information, more research to make a more informed decision. And I think entrepreneurs should do that more because otherwise they just struggle and get stuck in their heads. That's right. Yeah. The sign of a good leader is somebody who stays a student. Also, it keeps you young at heart and of mind that, yes, your experience is something and what you know is something, but there's always a new way of doing it, a new way of looking at it. And sometimes that is what you need to keep it going. Do you think there's a difference between a founder and an entrepreneur? I think the difference is probably like an entrepreneur can be kind of in spirit. So for example, when I was at Google and doing my intrapreneurship, I was being entrepreneurial, but I wasn't yet a founder. I think the founder status is maybe gained when you kind of say, okay, I'm going to start this. I'm going to take responsibility for this idea, for the funding, for the team, and be the face and voice and body of this thing that I'm now going to lead. I think that's probably an important phase shift that happens from entrepreneur to founder.
was an aha moment to you as a leader? So early on, our company went through some difficult stuff on like a regulatory front. And I'm always like the most stressed, most anxious person in the room. I feel like the most worried about everything. And the company got through that regulatory hurdle, largely because of some stuff I did with regulators and investors and customers and employees. And then after that, I started to realize I'm the calmest person in the room. (laughs) So I think that was my biggest transition. And I think the reason that happened is I realized that as a founder that's responsible for everything, it does nobody service if I'm freaking out. (laughs) And in fact, I need to be calm to kind of get us through this. So that was probably a pretty pivotal moment just for me personally, and probably better for Swarm in the end. So people listening out there that might be nervous to try, might be nervous to start, what advice do you give them? First and foremost, that's totally normal because running a company is kind of a crazy, life-changing thing. I think one thing that is surprising to me is I never thought that I could start a company. I didn't think that I was talented, smart enough, had the right experience, had the right confidence, had the right contacts. But I think that if you're really passionate about what you're doing, you figure it out. You know, it's a lot of hard work, but you, you know, one foot in front of the other and you're going to be able to figure it out. I also think it's super important to think about why are you doing this? Are you actually passionate about your problem? Are you actually passionate about how your technology is unique and will solve for it? I run into a lot of people that want to start a company because they see me in the Wall Street Journal and they think it's like a super sexy job. And I'm like, most of my time is like me sweaty alone in my office for 14 hours a day, grinding it out. People are yelling at me. It's not glamorous. (laughs) Get that out of your mind. So I think it's really important that you figure out why you want to do this and why you're going to stick with it. Because it's also something where it's your baby. You're the one that's responsible for carrying it through. And a lot of people are going to start depending on you, your employees, your investors, your customers. So you really need to be in it for the right reasons. So you don't let all those people down. And then I think imposter syndrome is just totally always there. I've had it my entire life since I was like four years old. And, you know, that's what keeps us maybe humble and keeps us fighting and and working really hard. So um, don't let that stop you either. To be able to lead, to be able to have an idea and make it happen, how am I the one that gets to do this? And it can be debilitating or it can be invigorating because it just makes you focus on doing everything you can to get one foot in front of the other and to keep the progress, even if it's just approved to yourself. But it can help push rather than debilitate? Totally. And you know, I actually had this first feeling when I was in undergrad engineering, which was, I don't know, 80, 90% guys. And I remember being like, I just need to work harder so that I can get the top grades and prove myself. And it motivated me so much. I kind of wonder like, would I have been as motivated if it was 50-50? So I certainly take it as motivating. And I think the more your company grows and the more challenges you have, the more you realize how ill-equipped you are for the next thing. But you also just realize like, hey, I was ill-equipped a year ago and three years ago and five years ago too. And we figured it out. And maybe I need to ask for help sooner or find the right advisor or find the right consultant or have you know a support system where you can talk through those challenges. But like, I'm probably going to get through this too. That was Sarah Spanglow, co-founder and CEO of Swarm Technologies. 
Swarm's mission is to reduce barriers for connectivity in remote areas through the use of affordable satellites. See more at swarm.space. Next time on Think Like a Founder, I talk with Hiroki Takeuchi, co-founder and CEO of Go Cardless. We chat about catching the startup bug, not outsourcing your core value, and the excitement of the unknown. I'm Maureen Taylor. Thanks for listening. Think Like a Founder is produced by SNP Communications in San Francisco, California. Learn more by visiting us at snpnet.com or connect with me, Maureen Taylor, on LinkedIn to continue the conversation there. Series producer is Roisin Hunt, sound designed by Mark Ream. Content and scripting by Mike Sullivan and Jason Drown. Production coordinator is Natasha Thomas. Thanks also to Selena Persiani-Shell, Eli Shell, Matt Johnson, John Hughes, and Ren Barra. 